Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick, and yet... Here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare. And I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Got a whirlwind show for you today, guys, with my guest, Dr. Robin Schlicher. Lots of throwbacks to my bar mitzvah Hebrew school day there. She's the vice president of business development at Pear Bio. But there's a whole lot more to this because she's got an incredible backstory, the least of which being her diagnosis in the autism spectrum and how she's managed to live her life in a way that's euphoric and depressive, but energetic and exciting. Out of the gate, you're going to know right away what she's about what she stands for, and she talks really fast like a New Yorker, so prepare yourself for some quick listening. Her whole shtick is the idea of ending the spread of cancer because what she does is help doctors and pharma companies evaluate cancer drug efficacy. What that means is, sir, this steak, I asked for medium well, but it's medium rare. Send it back and bring it back. That's kind of the gist of what they do, but they use something called organ on a chip. It's crazy. It's like James Cameron Terminator stuff, but it works to actually help medicine do what it's supposed to do, which is help the people it's supposed to help. She's exciting. She's adorable. She's frenetic. She's invigorated. And she's here in the studio for added chemistry. Please enjoy this incredibly fabulous conversation with Dr. Robin Schlicher. Now, I'm I'm Jewish and I'm struggling with your last name, which sounds like it is Jewish, but I know it's not Jewish or is it Jewish? That is actually Schleichler? It's it's often pronounced as Schlicker, but it's a it's a funny thing because it's actually misspelled. So when my ancestor came over, and I had to study this genealogically to understand what the problem is because when I was going to Germany to work for a German company, people would look at it and be like, "You don't say your name right." So we would say Schlicker, but in German, it's actually more like Schlischer. There should be a K there. Oh, and, really? Yeah, okay. and so. When I looked into my genealogy, I found that when they brought them in through Ellis Island, they said S-L-I-C-K-E-R. And then whenever my ancestor, the next generation, tried to go back to being German, they they misspelled it is my my best assumption. So whenever I'd go to Germany, I'd say my name wrong. And so I finally, like, you know, being a researcher, I looked into it. So the, the question is, do I say my name wrong or spell my name wrong? And I think the actual answer is we spell it wrong. Well, I, I, my family has that same Ellis Island oops etymology yeah. story. My, my mother's mother came over here as a Hannah Gittel Begunski. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. You're Ida Banner. 
Yeah, good luck with that Ida Banner. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was it was great to find the record because you know my father had always said Schlicker, and it, there's a ch in there. You know, I've learned enough German through the years, and I, I'd go to Germany, and they'd say, "How are you? Why are you saying your name this way?" And so, so you've gotten like like you probably on Schleicher and all. I mean, every every possible wrong permutation. Spoken. People love to put a T in there, Schlick. Tur, and they really spit that tea. Uh, the funny part with that is, like, I could always tell it was me because they'd start to sound like a leaking balloon. So they'd be doing roll call, and I'd hear, "Shh," I'm like, "It's it's me." That's you. <laughs> it's me. Just don't worry about it. Just call me Robin. S C H. That's it. You're done. Yeah, my my yep. brother and I would go by Slick. So he was like our, our email. I was, I was Doctor Slick nice. for a while because. It's again the etiology is ex- going through the explanation on do I spell it wrong or say it not wrong became later in my life, but it was definitely it never it has always been an issue like how do you say that name right and you know I don't really identify with that name very much. All right, my next question is you are Robin with a Y. Yes. How many times in your childhood were you at a a tchotchke store that has the license plates <laughs> of all the kids? And there's never a Robin with a Y. <laughs> I don't think I've ever seen a Robin with a Y. And my middle name is actually with a Y as well. So I used to think that if I found a man whose last name ended in Y and I was just screwed. You're <laughs> done. It's done. That's it. you know? But that's what happens when your mom is like 19 and just the cutesy, you know, R-O-B-Y-N, K-H-E-H-R-Y-N. And I'm like, right. oh, why? Is there a reason they gave you Robin? Ever, ever get that answer? I mean, who, who asks their parents, why'd you name me this? But did you do that? You've met me, right? So you know I did. I'm, I have, <laughs> this is for the listeners. They don't know who you are yet. They're going to know you. So my name was actually supposed to be Alicia, which I think would just sound terrible with Schlicker. Um, my <laughs> Alicia mother, Schlicker. I know, right? And people would be like, they'd be Alicia Schlicker, you know? Just imagine <laughs> if you had a lateral lisp. I know. I, it, would, it would just have been too much because nobody would say either of my names correctly then. But my mother said that I looked like a baby bird when I was born. I was a very okay. pretty baby. You look like a baby bird. And then the whole rhyming the middle name with it came because my aunt is Catherine. So she, she'd always intended to name me for my aunt. And then it became cutesy to do the Y and Y and thing. Fancy. Yeah. Very fancy. fancy. It Thanks. looks fancy. Thank you, Robin's mom. <laughs> She's a character all on her own. <laughs> so we were talking before the show that you're, you're the army brat with the army. You started in Oklahoma. Is that where you were born and raised? So actually, it's Air Force brat. Okay. Is it our Air Force brat? Yeah. So both of my... I've been militarily corrected. <laughs> um, my family, you know, again, I, I looked into genealogy and my family's pretty much been in combat since the inception of the country and often on both sides. So part of my family's Native American. And I think one of them helped disappear, one of Andrew Jackson's generals kind of thing. But... Now, the story is that one of them was working for Andrew Jackson and the Indians disappeared him in a swamp. And I should be correct and say Native Americans, but in that part of history, it was the French and Indian right. War. Um, Are they going to rename the French and Indian War the French and Native American War? Well, I, I mean, I'm really mindful of how we talk about well, I agree. People. I agree. But you think about like these things have been institutionalized across hundreds of years of scholarship. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yet you still go back and you say, well, OK, my... But I have an ancestor that was reporting to Andrew Jackson, who was, in my opinion, the worst president outside of recent events. He was pretty tough. And uh, they the, does the not nat- deserve the twenty. <laughs> the natives had gotten tired of his shit and disappeared him in a swamp. And then we kind of ended up in Oklahoma, my mother's side, because of being Cherokee Trail of Tears kind of thing is the is the the family tale. And I have. Being who I am with genetics, looked into that a bit and looked into it genealogically and did find, you know, that the full blood 
female. Yeah, what's Cherokee. the pie chart? What's the pie chart? Uh, the pie chart is really crazy. So everybody in my family is actually multiracial through other means. So my father is German and his mother is Filipino, but her great grandfather, I believe great grandfather, is Castilian Spanish. So she was a de la Cruz. So if you look at how the Philippines were kind of conquered by the Spaniards. That's all in my genealogy, too. But they met, my grandparents met because of World War II. So I'm actually a product of World War II on both sides. My my grandfather met my grandmother in the Philippines after the fall of Manila when the Japanese came in and took the city. And she was, the story is that she was, you know, living in a cave being a fishmonger when before that she'd been a nursing student. Wait, so you're like just basically a genetic potluck. Oh, totally. Like, you know, there's genocide on both sides of my family. So my my father was German and his father um, was also, I believe, part Irish. And that's where I saw like the the S-L-I-C-K-E-R coming in and there was some Irish in there. And then my mother's side um, traces back through some Native Americans, like, her grandparents are actually, her parents were also Air Force. So my parents met on an Air Force base. And my grandparents on that side are actually buried in what's called Marble City in Oklahoma. And Marble City historically was a place where they kind of asked the white people to leave so they could bring in the Native Americans. And some of my ancestors are actually at like the original Cherokee Mission. There's some thought that maybe they what were- What do you identify as? I identify as not white. <laughs> But, you know, that's that's a complex thing in this country, because if you could see me, you'd see a, a you know, redhead with freckles. But you look white. <laughs> exactly. But that creates a lot of interesting conversations, too, because, you know, I was raised in poverty with siblings that don't look white and a father who obviously didn't look white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think of that Steve, uh, Steve Martin movie, The Jerk, where he, I was raised a poor, you know, yeah, right. you don't look at I yourself. was raised a poor black man. <laughs> right, your, yeah. your, your culture and your perception are where you're raised at. So, right. so, you know, the people around us could see my siblings and know that there was something different about me. By the way, the best visual gag in The Jerk is at the end when he makes all the money and he buys a new house, but it's the same house, just twice as big. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly, but you know, there's some some interesting things happening with that lately. If you look at and former enslaved people have been accidentally buying the homes of the places where their ancestors were enslaved. So I, I don't know if it was like a gag or if it's really like an interesting sort of view to the future. Because, right. you know, going back and owning the property where things weren't so great, but making it better, I think that's actually, I think that's admirable. So you're a PhD. We're going to get to that in a second. But I always <laughs> yeah. ask PhDs the following question. Like, Endlessly, if you're on the show, you get the question. How many times have you been on an airplane when someone said, is there a doctor in the house? (laughs) And me, no, not that kind of doctor. So one of the ironies of that is that my mother was trained as a paramedic and her wife was also a paramedic. So I have actually assisted a few times, like me and and an army medic, actually, there was a young man who had a seizure. And so I was able to to help him a bit. But but yeah, it's only once in a while that you hear, is there even a doctor in the house? And usually there's like a a physician and I'm there to say, well, you know, if you need somebody to give you an an opinion about how we could diagnose him genetically, we could look into that for you, you know. (laughs) I saw on your LinkedIn, which is phenomenal and extensive (laughs) and incredible, and we'll put a link obviously in the show notes that people can, how the hell can something be this lengthy and credible and amazing? Ithaca College. Oh yeah, so that they solicited me to, to ask to to help them with their customer experience. It, it, yeah, like I, I actually did you go not, up there or is it down here? I actually been doing it remotely, so it's oh. you know because I am part of you know this this Z school to participate in, in giving them input about how to create programs to make better customer experience 
like experts kind of thing. And and customer, I think it's interesting we talk about the term customer because you usually think about like a like consumer. patient versus customer yeah, versus like, consumer. Yeah, like anybody can be your, your customer when you're trying to be in service to them. Right. So it was interesting to them that I have a, a big background in, in serving patients and physicians right. and things like that. So no, I asked because for me, Ithaca is a trigger word, a good one, because I went to Binghamton and spent <laughs> so much time in Ithaca. And I typically try to do some Wegmans joke in here, if you know what Wegmans is. Wegmans <laughs> yeah. is, yeah. I've been, here, I've been here more than 15 minutes, so I've seen a Wegmans. That's it. <laughs> You can't but, miss a Wegmans. But the, the interesting thing about that is um, I was actually asked to, to maybe switch over and, and do more of a focus. I was telling you about how I went to Mankato for art school. And so I'm yeah. potentially going to support a, a program that um, is more focused on empowering women. So I was just in Minneapolis, by the way. Yeah, I love Minneapolis. It's a great city. It's a little flat. <laughs> it's, it's like a nicer Binghamton, yeah. I would say. I'm not really trying to put any shade on our land of Great Lakes, whatever it is, the Thousand Lakes, whatever it is. Anything west of Jersey for me is, is like Europe. I don't care. <laughs> but at this point, it was it was a nice trip. I, I think it's a it's a great state, and um, it's a fine city. But you went to art school there, so I actually love to quote Prince when you talk about Minnesota. You know why why is he in Minnesota? And he's like, it's so cold it keeps the bad people out. <laughs> but well, it was eighty two when I was there, so I think climate change is deriding <laughs> Prince's well, intentions. You were there in the six weeks of summer. That's, yeah, I was. That's true. <laughs> So I actually had an aunt who, she she was an expert in plastics, and she had me come up there. She also was a chemical engineer, and, and I, I, I did an internship with her. But there was there was one summer where it just wasn't really working out for me to intern with her. But I had always had an interest in art, and so I went to uh, Mankato State and asked if I could join their art program. And um, they were, yeah, within like one, I, I'm actually a very talented artist. So so they, they were so excited by my work and life drawing that I, they actually asked me to, to stay. But you say I, artist, is it canvas, charcoal, sculpture? <laughs> so I'm mostly an expert in pastels and charcoals, sketch artists, life drawing. But I have done, I, I have done some forays into actual painting and oils, but it always looks like my pastel work, which I've been told by artists is actually really hard to do. So how well was DiCaprio's realism on the Titanic? <laughs> I think if I were to draw Kate Winslet, I would probably draw her from a different perspective. But um, he kind of, he wasn't actually drawing. You could tell. That I mean, Cameron him. was trying, I guess, maybe, yeah. if you give him that kind of direction. Yeah. They should have had you on set guiding Leo. I Perhaps. But he he wasn't actually drawing when they showed the drawing. Like, So the person, the artist drawing Well, it, it was from the back, right? Someone right, else right. was spinning their arms around. Right, right. So, yeah, I mean, the way that he sort of started out with some some impression of it in the circle like all that is accurate like the the one i ex my expertise is is an engineer and as an artist is really doing like measured drawing and so what he was kind of doing was the perspective to get the measured drawing when mm -hmm. you first see the the strokes that he makes the right. artist makes so you draw the polygons first and sketch around them uh, i don't necessarily draw so much structure first i do more like a contour but yeah like it's it's to really understand measurement in terms of perspective by measuring it against other objects is that your true passion your 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 I hate the word safe place, but is that where you go when you need to be somewhere that isn't the world? Uh, writing is actually oh, yeah. what I do. What do you write? I write a lot of really bitchy stuff about the patriarchy and healthcare and... I know not of what you speak. <laughs> what is this misogyny? Um, but I, I write a lot of stuff about recovering from trauma and how to be the person you want to be. Because if there's anything that I can tell 
people, um, and, and maybe we'll get into this a little bit more. Like I, I came from basically nothing, and I have gone back to having nothing a few times. In 2020, I actually thought I was going to die long haul, and uh, I gave all my money away. Was, well, we're going to get to the, right? the COVID thing. So I that's a thing, <laughs> right? So so I gave all my money away and and tried to at least. I read a, a story about a, a woman dying of, of a brain tumor, and she said it was really weird to die with money in the bank. And I was like, that's a very valid point. So I tried to support as many people as I could, and I did it anonymously. Um, what's really great is that- I didn't get my check. <laughs> Come on. The, what's funny is people were like, why would you do that? And um, a lovely friend of mine who I think should get more credit than he gets, he was he's a social worker, and he deals with- he deals with cases like I grew up in, children of extreme abuse and poverty, and he needed some help. And in return, he sent me this Godzilla bedspread that I will treasure forever. It's worth more. I might have had money. that in the 70s. Right? I'm slightly obsessed with Godzilla. So it was, you know, and it's, I can always make money, but you can't always get a really brightly colored Godzilla bedspread delivered to your door. But, but you had a point before. Like, I love the expression. I forget who told it to me. Like, I never want to be the richest guy in the cemetery. Yeah, exactly. What's the point? Exactly. Really? <laughs> but but yeah, I guess what I was trying to say is like, what I would tell people is, you know, you can start from way, way back and you can get wherever you, you want to be. Like, I, I used to joke about how, you know, I started out in a trailer in the middle of nowhere in Oklahoma with, with no electricity half the time. You know, I scratched and clawed my way to air conditioning, and the rest is, is cake, you know? Like, I, I think I just, I have a different set point for success than, than most people. Well, it's like that, um, that cartoon with just, like, equity, equality, and parity, mm-hmm. where... Just make something yourself. Isn't it's a cat poster, right? <laughs> well, and I, I don't agree with a lot of common things. Like I got into an argument on social media with people uh, wait, over wait. a meme. Why would you argue with anyone on social media? That is the best cancer prevention ever. Well, I don't get into deep arguments. I got it. I tried to get into discourse. So okay. there's this meme that says, and I I hate this because while I understand it, I don't agree with it. But there's all this thought process that you have to be rich and you have to start from. A strong place and everything is locked out if you're not a trust fund baby or if you don't have all this backup you're locked out and yes i am the first person to say that society is set up that those people are going to go further i i i started so far back that me just like getting up and breathing every day is, is a success success right. right so i i am completely cognizant of that however i gave the example that you know i it was about being an entrepreneur and rich people rich people's kids can be entrepreneurs because they can take those risks and I, I called bullshit on that. You know, like I'm an entrepreneur and I started with nothing and I'm willing to take risks because I don't mind going back to being impoverished. And the meme was written in such a way that it sounded like the poor kids can't ever really achieve. They're just, you know, they're just hanging out at the circus doing all the work. So what? And and so people kept trying to school me that I'd missed the point. I'm like, no, I am the point. Yes. You know, like I represent that. <laughs> you know, and and the person who originally posted the meme is actually a, a famous, a, a relatively famous author. So that was part of the reason I, would, I was participating in it. And she did actually point out to others that they were missing my point. But but then it got to be just too many people trying to school me, and so I just deleted it because I don't have time for that. Um, I I Note know. Note to self: Don't get into arguments. On Twitter. Well, the crazy part is it wasn't intended to be me getting into an argument. It was to me to say, yes, this meme has credibility. I do recognize that the Elon Musks of the world are going to become billionaires more easily than someone like me. But it was to give credibility to the fact that I could and people like me can actually leave the grind. You take the grind and and make the grind into other things. Right. I, I think that there's this 
thought process sometimes that if you didn't get the good starting block or the pole position, then you can kind of say, I don't have to go further than that. And, and that's fine. Like if, if you, if that's where you want to be, like I'm never critical of anybody who doesn't want to live the way that I do. Like not everybody needs to be a workaholic who's, you know, put themselves through the stuff I put myself through. But I think there's a place to support the people who get up every day and do say, I want to see how far I can push this needle. You know, I want to see what I can do. Wasn't expecting to get into Dickensian philosophy here. But with that, we're going to take a quick break and be right back with Robin with a Y. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm -mm -mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. So back in my day, I'm 48, so this is the 70s, you were just crazy, right? <laughs> Get over it, therapy. Fresh air on the roof. Remember those days? Like, we didn't understand mental health and spectrums mm-hmm. and these things. And then all of a sudden, autism, bipolar, Asperger's, these things were emerging for all the right scientific reasons. And I found out later in life that I'm bipolar. Like, Okay, now what? What do I do with this? I'm already me. Right, right. right. And you mentioned before the show that you have autism. Is that like normal? Is there a normal? Help me understand the spectrum these days. No, I I think that perhaps me saying that is a misnomer. I would say it's more accurate that I'm on the spectrum and neurodivergent would be the the better way. Is that the phrase neurodivergent? Neurodivergent. That's a lot of syllables. There's got to be something simpler than that. You know, it's... I think that there's a lot of bias about the term autism and its understanding of what it really means. Right. It's not the umbrella. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that there's a lot of space, um, you know, the, the whole big tent nonsense when you talk about some of the political. But that the neurodivergency is a big tent. There's a lot of different ways in which you can be a little different from your peers or from what is considered standard. We can't say weird anymore, can we? I say weird all the time. Like, I'm unbelievably weird. I, I wear that like a badge. I, I just don't but it's know It's just that... like, whatever happened to just being super geeky, nerdy, dorky, awesome? <laughs> well, I would think that we're both all of those things. Yeah. But the, the important part to talk about with neurodivergency is that it does create 
extra challenges that most of us have learned to compensate for our entire life. Mm -hmm. And when you find out that it's not just you being weird or crazy, because you write yourself off a lot, like, oh, well, I'm just weird. Oh, well, I'm just... It, it is actually a difference in the way you perceive things, and it does make things a little harder for you. And so I think it's important not to just have a label to what you are, but to have an understanding of yourself. You know, you're not necessarily going to perceive things in the same way. And, you know, we, we talk about, neuro, you know, ADHD superpowers, this this sort of crazy. <laughs> put things I can gonna... count toothpicks like <laughs> Dustin Hoffman. And I don't like to say that it's all just about having these crazy superpowers because it's exhausting to live yeah. on these high spectrums, as you know, with well, bipolar. Well, you're either right? on air or off sometimes, Exactly. Too. You know, the mania is like, everything is amazing. And then you're like, oh my God, I can't get out of bed, right? right? So I think that understanding that about yourself and then trying to create ways to communicate with your people around you so that they can help you, they can compensate with you. Because most of the people I know who've lived like this, especially women, because as we were saying earlier, women don't get, especially, I, I'm, I'm the same age as you, actually, which always kind of surprises people because I seem very young. <laughs> uh, so women historically didn't get diagnosed with a lot of these things, which is why my diagnosis is potentially very up in the air. Like a lot of this is How old expansion. were you when you got a, a question, like a formal? How old were you when you got maybe a quote unquote formal diagnosis? Uh, I didn't really get good input on that until I was in my 30s and 40s, actually. Mm -hmm. So I was accused of a lot of weird things. But I, 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 one of the challenges, again, is I come from a lot of trauma and I'm highly, highly intelligent. So my ability to compensate for things was extreme. So I didn't find out until I was in my 20s I even had learning disabilities. And uh, my you ability- You just were. I just was. And, and, you know, coming from a lot of trauma, people wrote off a lot of my behaviors as well. She's traumatized or people with PTSD act like that. Yeah. And like I said earlier, it even comes down to physiological problems. I'd go to a doctor and say, I'm having this extreme anxiety. My PTSD is well managed. And they'd say, well, but you're you have PTSD. You're just going to be anxious. And, and in the end, I you're actually some had Xanax yeah, I actually, and some bourbon. I actually had anemia. So there was a physiological problem. So I, I, I wasn't, I, I don't know how to really answer that question because it's been a process over 20 years. Right. Like my chronic health problem too took over 20 years to really understand better because I'm on this weird spectrum of, I don't want to say it's, it's cutting edge, but it's kind of cutting edge. It's, it's things that we're learning as information is coming out about the human experience and about how our genes form us into people with, with varieties of, of effects. You know, like I, I have, I, I can get really in the weeds with this. So, you know, I, I have a, a disorder where I don't potentially methylate properly. So that's you part of the reason. What, wait, what was so that? You, methylate? So in your cells. I'm learning today. Right? So, methylate. So in your cells to do an active form of something like a B vitamin, you have to add a methyl group to it at the cellular level. And that like ethyl methyl? Uh, like from chemistry? Kind of, yeah. CH3. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, so like that. And so okay. you, you, you stamp that on there and it helps to activate it. And some of us aren't well capable of doing that. And so I have some problems with processing B vitamins, so I have to take some in an active form. And, and and that's just doing that kind of changes my life because having that kind of anemia is really challenging when right. you're kind of low in B vitamins. You're not going to like gnaw on some I-beams on a construction site? I, exactly. But when you actually look at blood level of it, it looks like I'm potentially normal, but I'm not actually activating it properly at the right. cellular level. And you know, there's some thought that that's why I went into this part of the industry, right? Because I needed to understand myself better. Well, before we get to that, because I, I, I want to I get to what you're doing, because I was fascinated when, I, when we, our first date on LinkedIn. Do you feel like there's there's a balance of tolerance between people on the spectrum and people not on the spectrum? Yeah. My my daughter is very intelligent. She's somewhere 
She has part, most of my brain, like the weirder parts of my brain, but really smart. She sees the world differently and has like this uh, process and calculus about decisions and observations and proprioception in a very different way. And she can't understand, I mean, she's 12, right. so level set. She can't yet understand how everyone isn't like this. Right. Well, why can't they do this? Right. Why can't they see that? It's it's a, There's an over-under on this too, but have you, I mean, your career is storied, you've met tons of people. Have you had to develop a tolerance for people that are not in this, uh, what did you call it, neuroplastic, what was the word? Neurodivergent. Neurodivergent space. Yes. <laughs> and vice versa, I suppose, too. I, I think, it, again, it comes back to some of my trauma levels and some of my thoughts about myself from, from growing up. I always knew I was intelligent, but I didn't test as well as a lot of my peers. I always thought that I wasn't as smart as them because I couldn't quite hit the, the right goal post for National Merit Scholarship. I was always just a little bit under. Right. And then when they actually realized the level of learning disability I had, it became I'm astronomically intelligent, actually, but I can't be tested <laughs> for, for all the wrong ways. Right, right. I, I just, but I can't really be tested in the same sense because when they were doing IQ tests on me when I was four or five and I couldn't write it out, they were just asking me questions. They were right. like, wow, this child is so smart. And then they started putting me in to take like the fill in the bubble test, which I do well enough at. I've always been recognized as intelligent. Do you ever do the, the neuropsych psych test with the little the little things that have to go in the holes, like the, like a checkerboard? I've probably once in my life. I've had so much therapy. Anyone listening that's done a neuropsych test knows exactly what I'm talking about. It's it just drives you nuts. I've I've done many of those types of tests through the years because of my level of trauma. I've, I've I was one of those people that you know I'm gonna dig again. My whole my whole life, my whole career has been finding a solution. So I'm like I'm gonna talk to all these therapists. I'm gonna talk to everybody. and I'm gonna figure out. I'm gonna you know, do everything that I can to try to be well before I realize that wellness itself is a spectrum. Well, actually, that's a good segue to you working for a company now called PearBio, not a sponsor. I have to disclaim that. I just was fascinated <laughs> with, within the bullion base that is my brain churning every day on this idea of ending the spread of cancer. I come from advertising. I get slogans. I not, don't like nice little hooks here and there. But you chose to work there. Why? In part because it circles back to something I've been thinking about for a very long time. So I, you know, I was a, a grad student and we, we, let's go back to this, this first part of the story then. So I was, you know, five years old and people were like, what do you want to be when you grow up? And there wasn't language for it. I had a vision of the future where I could be not quite a physician, but other than that. And so I predate bioengineering and I wanted to basically be what became bioengineering. So I started taking engineering classes. I went to molecular biology and I tell people in medical school, you should study molecular biology. And the irony of it is, is they're like, oh, I guess you were right about that. Cause you know, look at the future that we're in. Early trendsetter. <laughs> I know. Well, that's when, so that's exactly what happened with Parabio. So I, I was working in a laboratory at Georgia Tech and we were working with Emory Hospital on cancer and I was working with cancer cells and I was supposed to be doing flow cytometry and I fell into this microscope. Wait, you, you keep throwing syllables here. <laughs> Photocytometry. Flow cytometry. Flow cytometry. Flow cytometry. Okay. All right. So it's when you look at a- Slow down there, Tex. <laughs> that, that is a, a per cell way of looking at, at at cell outcomes. So anybody who's worked in blood will understand. Like you, you take cells and you run them through a tube and you hit them with a laser. And, and that's what those syllables mean. Yeah. You okay. Them, yeah. Flow cytometry. Perfect. Right. It's counting. Through I'm going to hit the jargon button, but you that's are. okay. It's a medical jargon button. It's, it's, it's a good button to you hit. Know, yeah, exactly. So- I fell down a hole doing microscopy, and a lot of people who become like microscope jockeys will tell you that it's just very addictive. And so I was working 
with a man named Robert Epcarian in electron microscopy, and he was an, a really amazing person. Um, he he had died on a motorcycle at 22, and then came back to life. What <laughs> exactly? These were the kind of stories. Zombie doctor. Exactly. Uh, so he took a, an early interest in in trying to help me get through some problems because, I, as I told you earlier, I actually failed out of the PhD oh, wow. program I had first joined. And trying to recover myself from that, I ended up going into microscopy. And what he taught me about EM, um, these were the early days when confocal microscopy started coming in. We'll, we'll talk about what that means, if that will help you. So electron microscopy uses electron beams to look at very highly resolved images, but you have to really affect the cells a lot. You have is to, this new tech or is this? This is very old. So electron okay. microscopy is very old technology. And you can, you know, you, you, you fix, it's like, it's like, you call it fix the cells and you slice them apart and you stain them with heavy metals and you look at them so you really look down in the cells. So if you looked at pictures in books of cells like mitochondria, nucleus. The powerhouse of the cell. Right. So those AP pictures, bio. Yeah. So if you see these grayscale pictures back in the day, most of them were probably done with electron microscopy. Do they still have that, what's that, endoplasmic reticulum? Yes. Yeah, Do I remember something? Cells still have endoplasmic reticulum. You just jargon, <laughs> some jargon to my... You're learning. The right? space where the tumor was is filled with AP bio books. <laughs> so there was this kind of newer technology, this confocal microscopy, where you could do what was called optical sectioning. So mm -hmm. you didn't have to actually cut the cells you could use you could use light paths to look through cells and mm -hmm. then create three-dimensional stacks of it so you could set the microscope to capture capture different planes of focus and then recombine it in three dimensions All right, let's let's unnerd this for a second how does this apply to cancer so what i thought about when i was younger is if you look at the cells at this level and you treat them with chemotherapy or other drugs or what i was doing was a mechanical means and understand how it affect them intracellularly to cause death, then you could potentially create a way to do targeted chemotherapeutics or targeted ways to kill just cancer cells. Right. One of the challenges, as you know, with chemotherapy is it goes all through your body and it makes you Get very, very Get napalm. Right? And so my, my first work with Dr. Mark Prowlsnitz was trying to understand how to target these systems better, to, to try to just get the, the drugs or therapies to the cells that it needed to be in. And I thought there was a way to do that looking at the cells themselves. So I'm looking in three-dimensional analysis doing Z-Sacs on a confocal and also comparing that to flow cytometry. And this was some work that actually kind of became famous. So I, I got a big press release on this stuff using EM and comparing it to confocal. And that was kind of groundbreaking at the time. Now, so this is applicable today in what specific manner? So fast manner? forward 20 years to Pure Bio, where they're basically doing the same thing, but much better than I ever could. I would hope it'd be better 20 <laughs> years later. So what, from like Nintendo Entertainment System to PS6, it's got a, some improvements there. So so what they, they do is very similar in some ways. So they take, again, confocal microscopes. They right. do three-dimensional stacks over the course of days. And then they do computer vision, and they actually look at multiple cells, and they see how the cells change um, as you expose it to chemotherapy. And they can, we can create algorithms to tell you about the outcomes. Now, the really cool part about that is it's directly on cancer patient cells. So we take cells from a cancer patient. The we, cancer cells themselves. Mm -hmm. Okay. So we take cancer cells from a cancer patient. We put it into an organ on a chip. And so we take... What is an organ? That sounds very so James we, Cameron Terminator. What is that? So we, we have what we call chips, which are about the size of a microscope slide. They're you know, these small oblongs, and they're hooked up to a perfusion system so you can get chemotherapy to 
to kind of perfuse. So you put them. a piece of biological tissue on the slide. Yeah. So we take the cancer cells and you we, beat it with a stick. We, we affect them and we put them into these chips. Okay. And then we flow chemotherapy through and we look at it. We stain it with fluorescent dyes and we look at it in confocal microscopy, and we measure changes in the cell and we use computer vision to tell you if your cells are reacting to the chemotherapy. At the individual level? At the individual level, per patient. And you know, there's, there's a lot of really great things to think about with that, because if you can directly measure the effect of chemo on a patient's direct cells, then that can help the doctor make some decisions about what the right chemotherapy right. is. Right, the one size fits all that I had 26 years ago, don't work no more. Well, and there's been a lot of great advances in that. With liquid biopsy and other ways, we can look at targets, biomarkers. But the challenge with biomarkers is that even when you find a good biomarker, it doesn't necessarily hit every patient because you're still on a spectrum. So even if you have this particular gene, is it necessarily expressing in the right way? So, you know, genomics tells us one thing, you have those genes, and then RNA and expression tells us, are those expressing? But um, it doesn't always tell you that person is really going to be what's called a responder to therapy. And so the next stage is what we're doing now, which is functional precision medicine. So a lot of my career has been in precision medicine, you know, taking medicine precisely to an individual. And now what I'm doing is what's called a functional assay. So we're looking at how the cells themselves function when you expose them to the treatment. That sounds important. I I would like to think so. It's It's nice to know that (laughs) what you think will work might actually work. Exactly. And it's really important, particularly in patients that don't have a good biomarker. So Mm. Our lead indication is things like triple negative breast cancer. So I've spent a lot of time talking to triple negative patients. There's not a good strong biomarker to really guide that therapy for them. And it's a very challenging, complex disease. And when it recurs, their options are extremely limited. So it's really important to get it right for them. Well, we have about two minutes left. And there's a whole lot more to do. But you kind of live here. And we're going (laughs) to probably have you back many, many, many times because... Just, just the, my listeners know this. I've been doing this a long time because I was kind of drafted right. into the cancerverse. But I just find it so fascinating that this tech exists. We are literally at this point where, like, computers can determine whether you're going to live or die. Right. But you know, solving for X is making sure the patient or the human being on the other end actually knows it exists and can afford it and can get to it and all these other things. But in the brief time we have left for this particular episode, might you proffer up a perspective of hope that I, this 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 Einsteinian level progress in biotechnology will actually get into the hands of the right people sooner than later? I, I'd like to tell you a hopeful story and then tell you how I think this is going to play. Okay, out. let's wrap up with this. Okay, so yeah, I've been doing this for a long, very long time. I came from very grim circumstances and. But I kept believing in it. I worked the long uh, 120-hour weeks. I traveled six days a week. I helped build the in, you know I helped build the industry. I helped build bioengineering, all that kind of stuff. But in the last few years, I, I kind of gave up on myself. I was like, I'm, I can't do this anymore. I got very caught up in corporate structures, and then uh, I came to Pair in part because of the whole opportunity to close that loop on 20 years, but also because that CEO um, gives me a lot of freedom to do the things that I think are important. And so I had met a triple negative survivor, um, Saran Rothberg, a few years ago. On I know Saran. You know Saran. Isn't yeah. she lovely? So I met her on, on what was turned out to be one of the worst days of my life mm-hmm. um, at Stanford University. And 
she remembered me three years later and I said, hey, I'm working in triple negative breast cancer. Uh, I, you know, you're this great advocate. Do you remember me? And she said, yes. And she's actually, there's a gala for the triple negative society. I can get you in. So she got me in, even though it was sold out. And I went in there and uh, at first it, it was a lot of very lovely people who were giving a lot of money, right? And so I finally found a cancer patient and I asked her about her experience and she said she was a HER2 patient. And that was actually where I started in industry was at Abbott Labs on fish probes supporting oh, wow. HER2, right? So so I was out there in the field teaching people how to read HER2 <laughs> and it was it was it was novel. Like I keep telling people like 10 years ago this was a novel thought that you could you could make a better decision about how to treat patients using a probe kind of thing. And that's become standard care and, and was basically we recognized as the first CDX, first companion diagnostic. And I told her that and she just got very, wow. And then she points me to another person who says that, you know, they're triple negative and they get the Signatera test. And Jimmy Lynn and I, Ted Fellow, Jimmy Lynn and I were, were some of the first people. I was the first person to go out and talk about it in London from a commercial perspective. So I helped bring Signatera to the market. Um, it didn't even have a name when I first started talking about it. But that's rewarding. So I'm standing here in this room of women. A lot of them, you know, may not, would not have made it necessarily without this technology. And, uh, Every single one of them that I talked to um, has been affected in some way by work that I contributed to. And things had been really hard for me. And I had really, like I said, I was like, this is my last hurrah. I'm not doing this anymore. And we're all dancing on this dance floor to Gloria Gaynor. I will survive. And I'm like, you know what? Fuck all that other stuff. This is what I thought about when I was five years old, that one day I'd be in a room full of people who survived because I wasn't a physician. I was more and other than a physician. And how many people get to see that happen in their lifetime? So. I can't think of a better way to wrap the show with that <laughs> sentence. Dr. Robin with a Y, Schlicker. I'm just going to go with that. I'm not, not going to even try to pronounce it all the right ways. You happen to be the vice president of BizDev at PearBio, but you are, oh, so much more. And I guarantee you, listeners, you will be hearing more from her in the future. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patience is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.